Today I am talking with Ty Johnson, and he is a senior at Bowdoin College who is majoring in government and minoring in dance, and he's from Baltimore, but he's going to tell me the right way to say Baltimore. <laughs> well, many in Baltimore actually pronounce it Baltimore. Baltimore. Yeah, like water is water. Okay. So here's what we're going to do today, now that we aren't pronouncing our T's anymore, is that we will be talking about three questions. The first is, what's most important to you? The second is, what does a liberal arts education mean to you? And the third is, what do you wish your professors knew about you? And I'll be responsible for getting us through those questions, so don't worry about managing our time. Good. So, what's most important to you? Well, that's a very uh, loaded question. <laughs> there are many things uh, that are very important. I don't know if I can say one is most important. Um, are you extra enunciating your T's right now? I don't know. Am I? I think you were. I didn't, oh, I, I didn't, must have just cued you in a way where you're like, I'm going to get back at you. That. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely was not a conscious okay. thing whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> But, okay, so most important. First of all, I think um, the idea of being misunderstood. Um, I do not like being misunderstood. However, just in the way that we, you know, function today, it's just inherent and inevitable that we misunderstand each other so much. And that's a huge issue for me because, you know, it's a huge barrier to, you know, socialization and, you know, actually understanding your environment and being able to get the most out of all your experiences and interactions. And um, to be honest, just as a young black man in America, I was 22, 23 years old, sorry, um, and just, you know, navigating the world, I find that, you know, the level of misunderstanding when it comes to me is so out of whack at times um, that it's hard for me to sort of, you know, um, conceive of the idea that I'm valuable in certain spaces. Um, so that's what's really most important, just having a platform or the space in whatever space I go to, for lack of better words, um, to you know, gain understanding and not be misunderstood. So that's what's really most important. Um, yeah, I guess. I want to really pay attention to what you just said because it's, it is incredibly important, but it sounds like also there's the world's lar largest leaf blower right over there <laughs> that is going to be very annoying. Yes. So we may need to walk. This is not the first time that this has happened. Okay. But we will walk. and now, But this is the first time it's happened where we are attached by our dual lavalier microphones. <laughs> well, let's go. So let's do it and try to not crash. Okay. You, I think, will be able to do it, no problem, but I am having... You're questionable. I'm questionable. It's just, there's a lot that can go wrong here. Um, so, can we keep talking about this while Absolutely. we walk? I think I can handle Shall it. Shall I pick? I'll get this uh, for oh, you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay, so, um, there we go. Um, is your question... Or is your comment about what's most important to you is about being misunderstood? About not. Yeah, or, or not being. Misunderstood. Oh, you, you want to be not misunderstood. I is, want to be understood. You want to be understood. Right, okay. 
is this a version of Du Bois's question, what does it feel like to be a problem? To an extent, uh, yes. Um, because... Uh, I can't remember. Is that the exact formulation of his question? What does it like, feel like to be a problem or what is it like to be a problem? To but be quite honest with you, I don't know either, but I know that, like the format of that question is quite similar no matter what. Okay. Um, and I think I would agree that, yes, uh, it is like that question in the sense that in different spaces, like, you know, you just feel that you are not necessarily a problem, but there's uncomfortability in the air surrounding your presence. And that's for many different reasons. Um, and so, yeah. Should we maybe just go to this little corner, this patch right here? Do you think that that could be okay? I don't know in terms of traffic if it'll get quite oh, loud. Oh, let's, we'll go into, do you don't mind keep we carrying might as well those go things? Into the, no, okay. I do not. We can go to the quad. Okay. Um, right, because when I heard you speaking and talking about being misunderstood, which you're, what's most important to you is to be understood, but thinking about, it felt like an existential Okay, issue of fair. misunderstanding, right? Like, it fair. felt like it wasn't just I want to be understood in this way at this time by this kind of person, but it, it, it felt like a much more all-encompassing, totalizing expression of your experience in the world. I would agree, um, because I believe that I can take the idea of being misunderstood and put it in many different situations, um, whether that be uh, situations with friends and or situations with potential significant others and or family members, where this small idea, yet profound idea of being misunderstood literally complicates all those different areas. And so that has a, 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 an effect on my development. And to be quite honest, in my life, up to this point, like, there's been a lot of misunderstanding for whatever reasons. Um, and I've worked hard, like, through therapy and stuff to, like, you know, find out reasons for that and, mm. you know, find purpose in things. And the first thing I had to do was I had to understand, you know, myself and, you know, who I am, you know, in this society. And, like, and I'm not fully there yet. Like, I'm still figuring that out. But I'm, I'm on the quest and so, okay, there's simply stated... absolutely grass mowing on the quad. Let's go over this way. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so simply stated, just, you know, yes. not being misunderstood. Right. Well, and I... If that makes any sense. Yes. And I, I hear you saying in this that there's... Part of it is in... Let's go right here. Part of it is in the where the message or I guess I'll just say message for lack of a better word originates like in you what whether or not it's your fault what about you might cause misunderstanding yes um, whether again whether or not it is a fault of yours but that it might engender misunderstanding in some way but then there's also 
another piece of that, which is about why when you feel as though you're being clear, why are you not understood? Right, are, are there two parts of... Um, to an extent, I think a lot of cognitive dissonance comes with that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> because you, and for those who may not know what cognitive dissonance is, my definition of it is that <laughs> um, somebody has such profound core beliefs, like goes to the core of who they are, and they're presented with information that may uh, suggest that there are other answers um, in particular situations than what they thought could be possible. And so there's a cognitive dissonance in the sense, I can accept this new idea or this new evidence or whatever because it just, it just can't be true based off what my core beliefs are. All right. um, so uh, a lot of times, and to give an example, like, you know, we all, well, I don't know we all, I can't really say that, sorry. But for myself, like every now and then I really get, oh, you speak so well. And then, of course, the end of the statement is for a, you know, black person, you know. And so I always question that. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, you inherently think that other blacks don't speak that well? And it's not a, it's not a getting angry about it. It's just, you know, it's me being shocked with the idea that you could possibly be shocked that there's someone who's educated who happens to be black. And, you know, that small thing right there actually isn't small, and it happens a lot. So that's what I really mean um, by that. I'm also thinking about how there have been other students on this podcast even who've talked about sort of the fear of being understood or the fear of being misunderstood, but none of them, not, none of those who have said those words have been black men. And that being misunderstood as a black man in 2016 can be a matter of life and death. Absolutely. Um, and so how do you live with that? Um, because I that's heavy to live with. I mean, I, it's heavy for me to say to you, and then, so I'm curious, and maybe this is an unfair question because you, there's no outside, there's no outside of that question, you know, like I know that there's no outside of that question, right? Unless you can compare yourself to other folks you know here at Bowdoin or at home, and so I'm asking you to go outside of yourself and see if you can say that, but I'm not sure if you can. Okay, so how do I live with it? Uh, I don't know, easily, I guess I could say, I just live with it. In the sense that I'm, I'm of the thought process that, you know, we have to confront things. And like, I, I, sometimes I really get bothered by the fact that the word confrontation has such a negative connotation in terms of, oh, if you're confronting something, you're being violent about it, or you know, you're angry, or you're not gonna be reasonable. And that's not true. Confronting an issue is just, in my, I, my natural. If you don't confront something, you don't act as if it exists. You act as if it doesn't exist, then the problem just exacerbates. And that's something that we all know. Um, and so, to bring that back to the question, like, instead of, you know, coming into, 
as a black man, if I come to an all-white space, which is majority spaces that I that I, that I found myself find myself in, um, instead of being like in, having internalized thoughts about what these people may think of me, or you know getting down about what these people may think of me, or trying to improve myself to an extent where I just know for a fact they think this way, so it's just going to work. Um, instead of having that mindset. It's literally just allowing myself to be open and honest with not only myself, um, but those around me. Not only white, but you know those around me who um, I think respond much better, um, whether they're uncomfortable or not, when you're just honest about you know who you are, um, because that in of itself helps to sort of disarm the uncomfortability that's around uh, you know who I am as a being. You know, how I look sometimes, you know, because we know things are associated with how I look. Um, so it's just about understanding that, not shying away from it. And then knowing, too, like, when it's not the time to, you know, really engage in that conversation. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, if, you know, I'm open and honest and, you know, people are not biting the bait. Not to say that I go into situations actively saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to, my mission is to go into this cafe, have coffee, and talk about race and change their <laughs> minds. Like, no, but if it happens to pop up, which in some form or fashion it will, either intentionally or not, then you, people like myself just have to be ready um, to deal with that. And that's not to say the work is on us. No, because you're fine that, I find, sorry, that when I'm open and honest, the work is shared. Um, because then the realization mm. that that happens and, and the work becomes shared, if it's real. I'm going to ask a question that I give you full license to say we are not going to have Go. that conversation. Um, but I feel like so you were my first year advisee or my pre major advisee, and I feel like this is not a place you were in thinking these things. You may have felt the concern very strongly about not being misunderstood or being a, that you wanted to be understood, but I'm not sure you had reached this place of equanimity about it at that time. Is that fair to say? That is very fair. And so I'm curious how you have gotten to where you are today, which sounds like, I don't know, like when I think about women's issues, which I know I can't draw direct parallels at all to it, but I don't know if I have such generosity of thought <laughs> as you do right now. Um, and so I'm curious what has led to what seems to me somewhat of a transformation. Uh, well, it's a long story, so I'll make it as short as I can. Um, honestly, I've just, from the ages of, actually all throughout high school, starting in high school, um, I was pretty isolated as a kid in high school. Um, I went to a, you know, a nice private school in Baltimore, and, you know, the wealth disparity, um, while it wasn't that apparent in day-to-day -day actions, like, it was visible and, you know, always around me. And I don't come up with particular wealth, you know. I never thought I was poor. But until you get to a place where, you know, folk, you know, have careers and, you know, I can go on and on and on and on. You realize that, like, in some ways you're actually kind of poor. And so I had to come to terms with that first, which was hard. But I came, I, I came to terms with that well before coming to Bowdoin because clearly I was in that private school realm for mm -hmm. about seven years. Um, but somewhere along the lines, I was 
detached socially. And then, like, there was a double whammy in the sense of going back home um, to my, like, lower middle class neighborhood. Um, I didn't really identify with those kids anymore either because, like, my interests would start to shift. And so I was caught in, like, this little weird world where I wasn't moving socially. Um, academically, yes, everything, but socially I was stuck. And so that followed me to Bowdoin. Um, it wound up turning into, like, uh, me drinking a lot, which was, of course, not good because I actually did not drink anything in high school. I was straight-laced. And I, I was depressed. I was really depressed. I had to come to terms with, you know, my social ineptness, and I had to... Ineptitude, sorry. And I had to come um, to terms with, like, the fact that, you know, I was... Some, to some extent poor and these things really had damaging effects because uh, my dad was never in my life so I had to come to terms with that to that abandonment and all those things sort of came together in like a witch's brew <laughs> while I was here at, uh, at Bowdoin and, um, and so I wound up getting suspended um, for some decisions that I made um, so I went home and I, I, I was already in crisis clearly but like I really took I had a, like a revelation or a moment to myself where I was like, ah, I really am in crisis. Like, this is, mm. this is like an issue. And so I really did dig deep into counseling. And um, uh, I started to try and find a purpose because, like, I couldn't necessarily get that from my family for various reasons. And, of course, not my dad. And, and you know, I, I started to, you know, wanted to find my identity. Like, I, have, I hadn't been... It had been constructed for me up until that point. Mm. And it was starting to, like, fray away because, you know, it was built on, like, just floating through. Because I, I, I'm not a rich white kid. That's just not the truth, you know. And so... No. <laughs> and that's just not what it is, right? <laughs> and so I had to really come to terms with that, and I did. And I found the great books, as some call them, um, you know, with, like, The Republic, Plato, and, you know, the Coma. Uh, Aristotle Comedian Ethics and it's just so many like I, w- I would start to I would read them and I would start to see like oh my god there is a reason for me to still be here um, because of course in a crisis more like that you question what's your purpose right yeah and so like um, I got to such a level where I was like yeah I do not see the value of me being here I don't I don't see how I'll ever contribute I don't see how I'll ever have happiness and it was real for me like smack dab real for me like crying for days at, at certain times, just isolating myself. Like, it was really heartbreaking. And I realized the toll of my body, the stress that was taken on my body was just like immense. And so I was like, if I don't do something about this, I don't think I'll see 24, you know? And so when I made that realization, that's when I said, okay, I'm just gonna be honest and open about everything because that's the only way I can get out of this rut. And so far it's helped. Of course, there are still things that I have to work on. I'm definitely not perfect. It's not like I've answered all of my problems, um, but being honest about them and just accepting the fact that, like, you know what it is, what it is, and don't be ashamed about, you know, the struggle and the trauma that you faced, and it's helped. Is that one of the reasons when I asked you if you could be in, you know, be in charge of? Uh, be the boss of Bowdoin or heal <laughs> Bowdoin right after a time um, where um, sort of discontent about purpose and um, privilege and equity and sort of those 
questions came to the fore that you said, and, and I had asked you, and I kind of knew the answer to this, but I said, have, have those gone away or have they just gone below the surface? And you said, well, they're still here. You know, they're still here. We're just, we haven't done anything to really address them. And you said that you would recommend two hours of meditation outside. And you mean outside, outdoors. Outdoors. Is it outdoors for everyone every day. And what do you think that that would offer? Um, well, I think it offer a lot. Um, to begin, one of the constant themes here at Bowdoin is, uh, oh, we're always so busy. We have so much to do. There's no time. Email me. <laughs> But uh, no, there's truth in that. That's like we and I'm are totally guilty. Yeah. I'm totally guilty. You just watched someone ask me when can we have coffee, and I said in November. Well, I said email me in November. In November. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. So oh wow, I can only like you know get a couple moments of your right. time. Right. And monthly. today is what like October. It's today is October 11th. Yeah. I think, right. Or right. So probably, right. That's not okay. Yeah. You know. And so we're always like trying to do this, trying to do that. And then we get to the point where we have to be focused and we're like, okay, the point of Bowdoin is, you know, to get my work done and get up out of here. And I feel like that, honestly, coupled with the fact that it's such a small school and, you know, we all hear about the same issues and, you know, some of us have similar thoughts, but I feel like there's a prevailing... Um, I don't really know the word, but like some thoughts on campus are suppressed. Like a lot of conservative ideas are compressed. Like it's very like, oh, we're liberal, we're progressive. And you know, we're about all these things. And which is true, that's very true. But in terms of facilitating discussion that gets, uh, gets a more understanding of who we are as students, you know, like why we behave the way we behave, like why we have the thoughts that we have, how we can inform one another's thoughts, and then how we can, you know, really come up with real solutions to some of the divisiveness on campus. Um, the only way that can be done is if people are in a space where they're not thinking about how busy they are and thinking about time and thinking about mm -hmm. the next project or the next paper or the next meal and just saying, no, you know what, I'm gonna, for this two hours, get into myself and I think we'd find that if we did that we'd get more into each other um, hmm. and we wouldn't have to keep creating all these you know email me moments <laughs> <laughs> and that's just that's literally all it is because you know we talk about issues we have we develop forums to do so right but then they're also under that same umbrella of time we have a forum but we have an agenda mm. and we can only get a certain amount of questions out at a time and so your responses are limited. Oh, and then, oh, let's add the fact that it's like a mixed group of people and we all have different thoughts and I different ideas of what political correctness is. So we're not going to fully express how we want to express ourselves. Whereas if we got out of that mode of time, just for the, even though, yeah, you can make the argument, well, you just said for two hours, why just two hours? But I feel <laughs> that's substantial enough um, that if you get into a pattern of it, then, you know, you could break that, whatever. Mm. Just make sure you don't get out of like, you know, your responsibilities. <laughs> Don't go meditate yes. for five hours and not get your paper done. Right. But, <laughs> um, yeah, but that's really the point, just so people don't feel stressed. Right, because you can't attend to those things that are most significant. You can't. If you're feeling distracted or, or 
you can't even figure out what are the most important things if you don't take time to pause. Do you have, so I want, I want to in a second go back to your great books and connect that to the question about liberal arts education. Um, but before we do that, I was curious if you have an example of a time when either you misunderstood someone else and you came to a greater understanding of them or you felt misunderstood and you, but then you were able to correct the misunderstanding or reach a new place of understanding? Um, not to sound biased, but I, I really can't think of, I'm pretty sure there are moments when I've misunderstood someone for various reasons. Um, but I can't think of a concrete one right now. Um, but in terms of me, being misunderstood, if I think of one, I'll say it. Okay. Uh, it says me being misunderstood. Yeah, it's either, I just wanted to give you a, a set of options, so you can yeah. go either way with that. Um, yeah, the, I think there are many moments. Um, sometimes, there, it's not like overt in the sense that I can like, be like, yes, I know for a fact you mis you're misunderstanding me, and it's for X, Y, and Z reason, and I'm going to break it down. And, no, it's not always that way. Um, sometimes it's more subtle. Um, which which gets into the area of, well, like, how do you really know that you're being misunderstood, you know? Um, well, really, it, the answer has to be tied to race. Because usually when the misunderstanding happens, it happens because of race. And I'm trying to think of an example that's not, like, cringe-worthy. -like <laughs> um, <laughs> um, ah, for example, like, when I went abroad. Um, you know, we have this idea in America that the issue of race is not sort of a problem abroad mm. and that racism is not as big of a thing abroad. Um, but when I was in Morocco and I, and I was in Spain, I think it was quite the opposite. Um, it may not be necessarily specifically called racism, but there are institutions of hierarchy that involve colorism and that involve other isms uh, that mirror. And, um, and I found when I was there, in Morocco that people were very shocked that there was a black man from America um, who, you know, could, you know, form sentences well and actually cared enough about Arabic to want to, like, learn it and actually knew a little bit about Moroccan history. Um, that was mind-blowing to a lot of people. And I know because some of them said it. <laughs> and that's one thing I give them. They're very blunt about how they feel at times. Um, and so... It was just misunderstood. That's more on a grand scale because of just what they've seen in the media. Right. And it also gets back to my question earlier. Of it's, their, it's who you are that they misunderstood. It's not just a particular message you were trying to convey yeah. that was misunderstood. It was... Yeah, it's my very core. It was like, right. who are you? Little like, where are you from? Like, what heritage has informed your thinking like it was like really a serious question of who are you because we don't really know much about black people yeah mm. what um it sounds like when you sorry i just was formulating my question when you had to take some time off Bowdoin 
you said that's when you found great books. Is that true? Did you leave Bowdoin and find great books? I mean, I'm sure you have both in your high school and for yeah. the time at Bowdoin before yeah. you took time off. How did that... No, in terms of like the philosophical books, that yeah. was the semester... It's actually maybe like two semesters in um, that, okay. I, that I came across a Professor Yarbrough's class, Classical Political Philosophy. And that's where I fell in love with the Republic. But prior to that, like, you know, I had been really getting into the Bible. And I thought the way for me to restore myself was to, mm. you know, find God. Because I was like, I felt so devoid of sure. feeling. That, that makes like, sense that you... It must be God, right? Yeah. And if so you're I... seeking to find meaning yeah. and purpose, yeah. that makes sense. And then everybody around me corroborated that. Like, yeah, you just got to go to church. Mm-hmm. And so I went to church. And I was reading the Bible and I was reading it. And it occurred to me that, like, you know, you can't read the Bible literally. And if you read the Bible in a sort of metaphoric sense in ways to really get at what the parables are trying to say, um, they very much so say very similar things. Well, Jesus himself said very similar things that Socrates said. And so when I got to, uh, to you know, Professor Yarwood's class and started reading The Republic, and, and, and Socrates would make these wonderful arguments about the soul, there are moments where I was, you know, like in tears because I'm like, oh, this man is like, he's really getting that injustice. Like he's really getting at it. And like he's making me feel like, oh, somebody understands. And like uh, I fell in love with it. And so at that moment, I just, I, I wouldn't put the Republic down for a while, actually, after that. You have, we had lunch before this and you, this is perhaps the third time you've mentioned the Republic. <laughs> yeah. So that is, and as, as a philosopher of education, that makes me feel pretty excited yeah. that you, that it's such an influential text in your life. Yeah. So what do the liberal arts mean to you or what does a liberal arts education mean to you? Huh. Uh, well... In a sense, it's kind of ironic, and I hate to say this, but <laughs> like what I've come to interpret liberal arts education supposed, what it's what it's supposed to mean, it should enlighten us to the extent that, um, in Heidegger's words, we struggle. Um, you know, struggle was the only word of Heidegger's. We struggle, and not like in a like literal sense, like in a violent in violent means, like literally violent, but struggle in a sense to really understand the world around us. And that includes everything in it. That includes all beings, that includes me, you. We need to understand each other because we inhabit the same place, we don't have to live. Um, so liberal arts education is supposed to uh, peak our curiosity in a manner that learning becomes a habit and that we always want to learn and we always want to contribute and we always want to understand. And to an extent it does that. Clearly, I'm thinking along those lines, so I'm a product of that somehow. Um, but we also have to recognize that uh, liberal arts education is under the system of capitalism. And so a lot of things get reduced to, you know, um, I, I don't want to tread like weird territory here. Um, but I find that sometimes the way in which we function in this space doesn't allow us to actually do that. Um, to do the struggle? To do the struggle. Mm -hmm. Yes, it doesn't allow us to do that. And there are many different reasons for that. 
Um, so no blame to be thrown around mm -hmm. here. I totally understand that. It's just, you know, the function of our society. I mean, doesn't Heidegger have an explanation for that? He calls it the they, das man. He does have an explanation for that. Um, however, I feel that uh, the folks of the interlocutors of education who are the closest to philosophers in our day and age yeah. um, also fall into the trap of, well, I'm going to do, uh, I don't want to sound like, you know, too bad here, but like, volunteer are just doing book tours, just lecturing and mm. doing research and sort of get removed from some of like the biggest issues that happen like on the ground. And it happened for myself too. Um, like when I went back to Baltimore this past summer and did a summer camp and you know, I would, before that I was like a community organizer of some sort, you know, I walk around talk to people in the community, urban community, like low income. And uh, I realized that I was really far removed in terms of vernacular, in terms of, mm you know, culture in terms of all that stuff, like, um, and relating to them. So I had to, like, check myself and be like, oh, all this theory that I've been reading is great and all, but, like, not if you can't put it into practice. Um, and so we put it in practice in a way that's substantive, that matters, that's not a dictation of how things should go, but it's how, like, naturally how things should go through working and under, working together and understanding one another. And um, so that would be what I'm, I'm really thinking, if that makes sense. It does. I think also professor, many professors have those concerns, you know, yeah. and say, and say that, that you know, and the, what we need to do in order to secure positions or to be promoted is based more on an academic market than um, engagement in yes. thought and engagement in the world. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a long tradition, which, have you read Michael Oakeshott yet um, ah. in Professor Franco's class? Not yet. Okay, it's on the syllabus though, It is right? on the okay. syllabus, I have it on my desk. Okay, um, <laughs> have you, did I just like out you, were you supposed to have read it over fall break? Actually no, we're on okay. Hannah Arendt. Okay, good, so oh. you did not out anything. Okay, great, are you, what are you, are you reading um, The Life of the Mind? Or I can't remember what he. Yes. Um, I believe that's what it is. We're talking all over the condition. Or are you talking about the human, it's the human the condition. The human condition, sorry. It's the human condition. Right. Um, and maybe it's actually just the, the, that's a section of the human condition, the life of the mind, and then the vita activa, I think. Yeah, sorry about um, that. Oh, I forgot what I was talking about now. Um, you were asking me about... Oh, if you read... Uh, right, yeah. so there's a long tradition um, of folks and... Michael Oakeshott is probably the most one of the more contemporary um, people to do this. Like say, like that we need this space. Although actually, Hannah Arendt will say make a similar argument in some ways about that we need to have this remove from the exigencies of the world in order to engage in real thought. Um, but then there's also a piece where what actually is happening is not just that we are removed from the world, but then we are, and I hear this is the argument you're making, but that we're just thoughtlessly working on a sort of market system. Yeah. Um, so we're doing neither well. Yeah. But the thing is we have the intent. I, yes. I strongly believe that we really do have the intent 
to make the world, uh, or at least like in the small ways that we can, the intent to make things better, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we miss the mark too often, only because like we've been like discussions about diversity have become a thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas like it's kind of like uh, all right, so now we know we're going to discuss it. So what plans do we actually have and yep. how committed are we actually to implementing those plans and of course i'm not you know condemning anyone like i'm a part of this like so i'm struggling with all of this as well yep actually so first of all i just watched a squirrel fall out of a tree the branch broke i don't know if that's a metaphor for what we're talking about right now um the other piece is that I was just thinking that I'm a part of this too, right? And one of the things I've tried to do in recent years is to take more and more off my syllabus um, so we can think more deeply about fewer things or, you know, I, I and I don't know. I can't guarantee that students just don't fill up that time with other things, right? That's their cho right. That's their choice, and it's kind of the vacuum that gets other things sucked into it. But I, but I do. I think that creating space for almost you know how there's like the slow food movement and the slow TV. Like there's slow TV. I think now some Nordic channel or something. It has is now there are channels on Amazon or something now about that. But what if we had a little bit more slow academics? And I know that that's done in some places through the um, having only one course that you take for a quarter or something like that. But even that I've heard from folks feels very rushed that you're in a uh, you're moving at a real clip. But I like the idea of what would it mean to be a slow learner? which has all these negative connotations to it, but what, it, what would that... Yeah. Um, what would that look like? And I think that's where we find we really like retain stuff anyway, too. Mm -hmm. Like, just naturally. Yeah. If you focus more. If, you, if you're going to a slower pace, you're going to focus more. Right. You're going to retain more. Right. And it's just like, yeah. <laughs> or the questions that emerge Yeah, are you're more... able to like link them in a you know, more accurate yep. manner. All right, so my final question. What do you wish your professors knew about you? Um, that whenever I come to talk to a professor, just know that beforehand I probably did about 15 minutes of deep breathing because for some reason I get really nervous sitting down talking to professors. And that's mostly because you know, I'm one of those guys, right, that will, like, Google you and find if you did lectures anywhere, like, you know, I, I'm that type of guy. <laughs> so I'll, like, watch videos, like, oh, they made a great point. Oh, I love that. I should go talk to them about that. And then um, the respect that I have turns into, like, nervousness. I'm just like, oh, I don't want to, like, I don't want to sound dumb. I don't want to, you know, like, say something that's, like, not appropriate or I don't know how to develop of course, I've had problems with you know, developing positive social relations. So I always think like, oh, professors are so intelligent. Like, I'm not going to be able to develop a real relationship with them. Mm. And so I've gotten over that somewhat, um, clearly, because I've come to y'all office hours. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was a real fear of mine. And I've actually talked to a few students 
they will remain nameless, who maybe don't feel as severely about that as I do, but have some sort of apprehension about coming to talk to professors. And then trying to figure out, you know, once we get advice from you guys, like, how to actually, like, put that to practice in our lives in a way mm. that's, like, meaningful and valuable. Um, because unless you really know what you want to do, which aren't all of us, including myself, like, when you get lots of advice and stuff, it's, it's kind of hard to, like, narrow it down and be like, ah, okay, so this is how I can, you know, make use of this sort of relationship in a way that doesn't feel like I'm using this person. Um, that's what I would like professors to know, I guess, more than anything. Is there anything that we could do to make it I don't better know terms, for you when you when you come into you know when you come into that space feeling that way? I mean, I don't really think so because I think what I just described was more like an internal thing for mm -hmm. me specifically. Right. Even though other people may feel similarly um, in their own way, it's very internal for me. Like it just it was a part of like all the other issues that I faced, and so once you know. I've started to get over that. I've noticed that it's not that much of a problem. Professors are actually like very nice people. Um, like they actually like for us to come talk to them. Um, we do. <laughs> yeah, I get that impression. So I don't think it's phony. You know, they actually like us. And so I was like, oh, you know, Ty, you're just being too hard on yourself. And um, I just want professors to know that they're like, yeah. And that's it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for giving me. A moment of pause today. Yeah, it was really nice to talk to you, you about well. how far you've come, and it's sort of really um, beautiful to see oh, the man and the scholar you've become um, you. over these years. Thanks. You could just take it and run.